0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is Episode 9, A Snake in the Grass. different topics, but I promise they all center on the England of 1013 to 1014. We will begin by asking the question, why England? That is to say, why is England such a battleground for the Danish? What is it about this little island nation that sets it apart from other lands throughout medieval Europe that makes it such a draw for Vikings and nation builders? Also, we establish English societal structure during this time, and, and how it directly affects how things unfold during the Danish invasions of the early 11th century. And finally, we push our understanding further along as we see Ethelred's struggle, which isn't really anything new, let's be honest. His relationships with his eldermen change, an overhaul of leadership on the island, And we also meet one of the key players who's been working in the background throughout the 1000s and 1010s. So far, much like a snake weaves its way through the tall grass, striking when it's convenient and disappearing when it's not. I hope you enjoy the show. So before we get into the meat of this episode, why England anyway? I mean, why were the Danes so interested in this island off the coast of such a rich and diverse and influential mainland? England was hardly a destination hotspot for Europe's elite at the time, you know, so again, why England? Well, to begin with, Being separated by the mainland by an average of 20 miles of cold, choppy waters, England saw a major shrinkage of their trade routes and networking after the fall of Rome back in the 450s. I mean, England wasn't forgotten, but all of Europe seemed to shrink back locally as soon as the framework of the Western Roman Empire collapsed. It succumbed to the new authorities of those barbarians, as the Romans called them, of the Goths, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, and the Vandals sweeping through and disrupting the fairly stable equilibrium the Romans had already established. This left England somewhat alone until the Saxons arrived many decades later, think King Arthur in the 500s. The expansive Roman road system developed over the last few centuries, well, these broke down considerably during that time, thus cutting off the farthest reaches of Roman Britain and making overland trade and travel harder and harder and more susceptible to raiding and plunder by Celts and Picts and other local groups. Like Arthur, Roman walls built to protect them from those pesky highlanders in the far north, the Antonine and Hadrian's Walls, These also faded into the mists of myth and legend for a while. So by 1000, England had weathered local warfare between Saxons, Picts, Norwegian settlers, the Gaelic peoples of Irish and Scottish descent, Angles, Celts, the Welsh. Some Viking raids in the the 790s and the 880s and 940s sought to upend the growing power of Saxon elite of Wessex, but eventually... Alfred's kingdom prevailed. Each time. Well, until Ethelred II, that is. Alfred's England had an economy built on pretty much the same stuff that the rest of northern Europe had. It was overwhelmingly agricultural, but not on any large-scale framework quite yet. The vast majority of English farmers were self-sufficient and managed to eke out a living that took care of themselves and maybe their neighbors they inter- interacted with on a weekly basis you know beer and wine were the preferred drink as it was deemed safer than some of the water and if they watered it down they saved money so that sounded like a win win they also made cheeses from the milks of both cow and goat speaking of cows cattle grazing was also a popular way to make money and large tracts of grazing land was set aside for the most wealthy to maintain By and large, even peasants seem to be in fairly good health. But I found one interesting thing to point out here. Their staple food, bread, well, they ground their own wheat down to make it. See, this, according to the archaeological record, had a major impact on their dental health, as their grinding equipment was mainly made of stone. So that means that tiny particles of stone found their way into the flour, was baked into the bread and was then ground into the chewer's teeth. Well, as you can imagine, the English, along with their mainland neighbors in the Middle Ages, well, they lost their teeth very early in life. This would have a detrimental effect on their overall nutrition, as chewing is really just the first cog in the complex machinery of digestion. If food isn't chewed properly, the the nutrients can't be fully absorbed into the body, see? Seems like a silly point to make, but think of the lasting implications that lack of specific nutrients can make on the human body, makes one a little more appreciative for the little luxuries we enjoy today. So as for everyday life, they largely made their own homes, their own clothes, their own furniture, bedding, fences, tools. Of course, trade was a large part of this, but for the most part, the English were pretty self-sufficient and industrious people. When you take into consideration two other things on top of England's prosperity, and the hard-working, self-sufficient nature of its people, it's no small wonder why foreigners would want to continue to harass and ultimately invade. The first is simple. When Olaf Tryggvason initiated King Ethelred's danegeld payments in 991, there was a banner flying high above the palace in Winchester, Ethelred's ancestral home, that told the world that England, well, had money. Like, a lot of it. When the next Danegeld payment was made, it was even higher. You know, and that caught the attention of Swain Forkbeard of, of Denmark, among others. Not a good precedent to set. And the second consideration is one of personal and national pride. Ethelred, ordering the mass slaughter of all Danes living in the Kingdom of England in 1002, included the sister, if you remember, to the king of Denmark, Swain Forkbeard. You can imagine that Swain, he'd been looking for another legitimizing reason to uh, officially extort or even invade England. Punishment was on his mind in some way or another. With the St. Brice's Day Massacre, Ethelred handed him just such an opportunity. With Swain Forkbeard's 1013 invasion, England had hit the point of no return. Another draw to the island was the maturity of its social structure. We tend to think of the medieval period as a period of social disparity and fracturing. And I won't even pretend there weren't periods where that was the case, predominantly. But even in the farthest corners of Europe, beginning to crawl out of the darkest ages, England, due to Alfred's civil reforms back in the 880s and into the 900s they carried, had grown to be a highly stable society. According to Mark Morris's book, The Norman Conquest, At around 1,100, so about 80 or so years after our current narrative, the population of England hovered around 2 million people. And this was after an incredibly bloody, unstable, and turbulent century of warfare, deceit, and agricultural and commercial destruction. He writes that through all of that, England's population still continued to rise according to contemporary sources. And accordingly, we can deduce that England's population around 1,000 was maybe a little more than a million inhabitants. To me, this is impressive and is a testament to the economy of the island as well as the resilience and hardworking culture that existed among the English then. From these million or so people Morris talks about, he breaks it down between quote, the free and the unfree, end quote. The unfree are, of course, slaves. And it might surprise many of us today to learn that upwards of 10% of that million were slaves. To be clear, that would amount to about 100,000 people in England during Ethelred's reign were slaves. To take that a bit further, the same percentage holds true according to Morris. A 100 years later or so, by 1100, about 200,000 people in England were slaves. Yeah, you heard that right. Slaves. We keep hearing this pop up in the podcast, and again, I'm currently researching for a series down the road about the booming slave trade throughout medieval Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. But for now, don't forget that both the British and Irish islands were ripe for the picking for slave traders. Both customers for importation as well as dealers for exportation. Mark Morris calls these slaves, quote, "...one of the main motors of the economy," end quote, which lends weight to the idea that slaves pushed revenues made from labor throughout the countryside. It was no wonder why England was able to bounce back so quickly throughout each devastating event in the 11th century. When the overhead costs in the human resources department is next to nothing, Short of the most basic food, clothing, and shelter, all profits can be poured into expansion or rebounding. And as we know, one of the main motivators for Viking raids weren't just for wealth stripped from English and Irish monasteries, but also the Angles, Saxons, Welsh, and Irish were strong, healthy workers that caught high prices on the market. Many Irish, for instance, ended up in both Scandinavia as well as Cordoba, the prosperous Muslim stronghold in present-day Spain. Morris reports England as, quote, one of the principal hunting grounds, so individuals abducted from the coasts of Devon, Wales, or Northumbria might eventually find themselves laboring under a desert sun to construct a caliph's palace or members of a sultan's harem. And to rip the band-aid here, as despicable as the practice was, slaves were property, pure and simple. Like cattle, or a boat, or a hammer, owners could do with them whatever they wanted with little to no legal or social repercussions. I'll let you use your imaginations to ponder the depths of depravity some owners might have exercised upon their slaves, at will. So moving up the social hierarchy, next were the peasants, called churls. These were free people. However, I want to be clear, as we dip our toes into the subject of feudalism after the Norman Conquest of England, this idea will be bent and twisted and challenged rather uncomfortably, so stay tuned for that. But really, for this time period, the early 1000s, Churls were proudly free men and women, insofar as they stayed out of debt and paid their taxes. About a quarter of the population were part of the nobility. This was a class of people who were largely the land-owning population and to set them apart from churls, who also owned their own land, the nobility owned a lot of land. To be a member of the noble class, one had to own well over a hundred acres. When you reached the nobility, it was almost mandatory that you needed to serve in a public function as well. This was usually as a member of your local theme, which was essentially a, a local assembly of leaders. If you found yourself at the very tip-top of the nobility, you might even be privileged enough to travel with the king, dine with the king, and even become an acquaintance of the king's, but these people were few and far in between. Just shy of the king at the very, very top of English society were the eldermen. We've met one already on this podcast. Well, briefly, I mean... Britnoth, way back in 991, was the elderman of Essex, who had had enough of Viking raids and sought to make a bold stand outside Malden. Remember him? England was separated into large principalities, for lack of a better word. They were Essex, Wessex, Sussex, Northumbria, East Anglia, and the five boroughs in Mercia. And each of them had one major family with one preeminent patriarch who led them. These people they called Eldermen, and the Eldermen, more or less, had the king's ear first and foremost. Eldermen served as judges, deputies to the king, and even generals in wartime. Again, Britannath led his army into battle, and he even died in that service. This societal hierarchy demonstrated a highly focused and mature political entity there in England by the year 1014. Morally or ethically abhorrent or not in places, From the top down, this social structure paved the way for England to be a wealthy and successful kingdom. Remember that this put them directly into the crosshairs of outside forces, namely Scandinavian Vikings. Each Danegeld payment since 991 increased. Because they could increase. Because the invaders knew their king would not only pay it, but could pay it. Weak leadership and a strong economy are a crippling combination when bullies come torching your towns, hauling off your laborers, and demanding pay. Switching gears here, 1014 starts off with a one-two punch to both sides. Let's break it down. As of, say, November of 1013, Ethelred and his family remember Emma traveled separately from her husband and children, which seemed rather odd at the time, sought sanctuary in his brother-in-law's home in Normandy, Emma's home. In the meantime, the Archbishop of York, Wolfston II, or Lupus as he styled himself, was apoplectic with rage at his countrymen as to their behavior in the preceding decades, and he let the world know about it in his Sermolupi at Anglos on the last episode, the Sermon of the Wolf to the English. And by early February of 1014, here's the other part of that one-two punch, the new king of both England and Denmark was dead. This left the country in absolute disarray. Who would be king of England? I mean, forget Denmark. What about us? The nobles were in some serious hot water here. They had just sent their king packing. <laughs> Literally. They chose to back some, some, some brutish Viking king just weeks earlier instead of their fellow Briton of almost 40 years. Why? Well, something we haven't touched on in the podcast so far is that Ethelred... well, I mean, okay, pardon the language, but Ethelred was an ass. I mean, this guy might have been the second son of a beloved Viking-expelling king who established peace on the island once again. But make no mistake, Ethelred was not his father nor was he his great-great-grandfather, Alfred. Don't forget that Ethelred, at 12, assumed the throne only because his half-brother, Edward, was murdered at his own castle in Dorset just three years after being on the throne. People didn't forget it, as is abundantly evident in Wolfston's sermon. And despite what they thought of young Edward as a person, they even in the years afterwards renamed King Edward as Edward the Martyr, after reports of his body being dug up by the clergy a year later and finding no real decomposition occurring. Miracle indeed. There's a lot to be said about how the people thought of Ethelred's rise to power, but the nickname for his brother, I think, kinda says it all. But there is a particular culture among the elite that needs to be fleshed out in order to get a to, to better understand Ethelred's decisions and England's imminent collapse. And we trace it back to someone most people would never have thought. Alfred. Yeah, so it's safe to say that Alfred the Great is one of England's most beloved national heroes, even today. The same could be said of the England of 1,000 years ago, too. Everyone knew the stories of how Alfred took a beating, was even expelled from his throne by Guthrum, a Viking warlord who took all but Wessex, thus the titles of the historical fiction novel series by Bernard Cornwell and the Netflix series The Last Kingdom. And they also knew how Alfred, ever the scholar and military strategist, outwitted Guthrum and the other Viking chieftains and took back the lands of England and unified the disparate kingdoms. Alfred didn't just connect the kingdoms of Northumbria, East Anglia, Mercia, and Sussex to Wessex, He created a newish societal structure that unified it through commerce, taxation, and communication. He consolidated each part of each former kingdom and fit it into the hierarchy of the House of Wessex, who would rule England until his great great grandson, Ethelred II, over a century later. In fact, since the Saxons, his people, and the Angles were the largest groups in the new kingdom, he renamed the kingdom as a whole as the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. That's how they referred to it at the time, which was eventually shortened to England or Land of the Angles and Saxons. One specific thing Alfred reformed was military service. He created a standing army, though much of the armies that would go to war would still require service from the farmers and the traders around the kingdom. But this base army would serve as a trained fighting force against foreign invasion. His eldermen were in charge of their own loyal fighting force, but this was crippled as a way of diminishing any threat to the crown by kingdoms he just saved from Vikings. Over the decades, the standing army would remain, but would be stripped down almost bare of its once held esteem and numbers, and the eldermen would be free to establish. Larger and larger loyal retinues, between Alfred's war against Guthrum in the 880s and 90s, to Ethelred's uptick in raids during the mid to late 980s, there was just one major blip on the radar in the middle of the century with Eric Bloodaxe. That England suffered any real invasion on their on their sovereignty. This created a system in which eldermen were largely left to their own devices. Before and after King Edgar's reign, remember, he's the king who defeated Eric Bloodaxe, Ethelred's father, right? England's military readiness was severely stunted by a lack of action. Couple that with an ever-decreasing trained standing army, and by Æthelred II's reign, you have an entire population of nobility who have had a century to pretty much sit around thinking about things other than what to do with when the vikings came back to town. So what does this have to do with Ethelred being an ass? The king was no different. Again, except for King Edgar. Kings during this time were also left to think about other things, like power plays and politics and deception. Sure, Ethelred is also known Uh, and even at the time was recognized for good things, such as the Wantage Code in 997, which set up the granddaddy of the coveted trial-by-jury system in liberal democracies today, as well as ordering the construction of new churches and, and updating old ones. He had a slew of civil reforms. But make no mistake, he was no saint. You know, a saint like his brother, Edward. So, as an example, in nine ninety three, Elfric of Hampshire had had enough of Ethelred's political maneuvering, and he defected. So, without question, Ethelred blinded his son. Yeah, Ethelred was extreme. He did stuff like that, like like all the time. And as we continue this narrative, keep an eye out for examples of this kind of leadership. But I think the thing that tops it all off was the person he listened to most when ruling. See, his name is Ethelred the Unready. But it's a bit of a misnomer, as I've said. It's actually a mistranslation that's been modernized to mean something it's not. The actual name is Ethelred Unred. Unred is Old English for ill advised, not unprepared or unready. Readiness had little to do with it, it was more the counsel he sought out over all the others. See, he had this guy. This guy, see, he was an absolute scoundrel. He was ruthless. He was an opportunist. And and for those that know the Lord of the Rings story, he was a lot like Grima Worm, Wormtongue, who twisted the ear and polluted the rule of King Theoden of Rohan. Now, to be crystal clear, this doesn't let Æthelred off the hook for anything, but it does offer an insight as to a lot of the decisions that were made and carried out, especially those on the more ruthless side of things. This guy was really nowhere to be found before 1001, in the records, when he was found listed as a witness to royal charters, though his father was a part of the Witten since the 980s, at least. A Witten was the name of the king's council of eldermen who met periodically to discuss matters of state and to offer advice to the king when asked. This guy came from Mercia. In fact, as of 1007, he took over his father's role as elderman of Mercia. Sometime within two years, he was married to the king's daughter from the first marriage, Edgith. This marriage, to be honest, was kind of astounding. I mean, a king's children were very often pawns, save for the eldest couple boys who were, who were groomed to someday take the crown. Younger sons were often sent to monasteries to bolster the esteem of that particular church, much like young Brian of the Dalgash was back in Ireland, but princesses were explicitly used to establish marriage alliances with surrounding kings. This marriage, to be honest, was kind of astounding. I mean, a king's children were very often pawns, save for the eldest couple boys who were groomed to someday take the crown. Younger sons were often sent to monasteries to bolster the esteem of that particular church, much like young Brian of the Dalgash was back in Ireland. But princesses were explicitly used to establish marriage alliances with surrounding kingdoms. Some were even married off to powerful but difficult to reign in noble houses within a kingdom as a way to tie that family's lands more securely to the crown. But rarely were daughters married off to well-established noble houses within a kingdom. So Ethelred, married marrying off his daughter to the Elderman of Mercia, well that's a real head scratcher. Aidgith's husband, Ethelred's newest son-in-law, an elderman of Mercia, his name was Edric. Over the next few years, certainly by 1014, Edric would have earned the less than respectable surname Strayona, which meant the acquisitive. Edric Strayona, or more precisely, Edric the Inquisitive, earned the name because of his deceptive backstabbing and murderous approach to politics. And Ethelred was a sucker for a good hitman. For example, the first time we even hear a whisper of this man we know to be Edric Strayona was in 1006, just one year before he was named Elderman of Mercia, Remember? To summarize John of Worcester, a post-Norman English monk out of Worcester Priory, in his Chronicles of the Danish Conquest of England, he says that Edric greeted the respected elderman of Northumbria, Elfhelm, as old friends. However, having promised riches to a local butcher to commit the crime, he invited the elderman out for a hunt, in which Elfhelm was brutally murdered. Soon after, at Æthelred's behest, Edric oversaw the blinding of both of Elfhelm's sons as well. There's no other way to say this without sounding like, a, like an uber-geek, but I'm going to say it anyway. The North remembers. Okay, seriously though, Northumbria, Ethelred's only real buffer against the wild picks to the north, and a crucial ally as far as being able to defend England against the Danes, well, they won't forget. And Ethelred will soon wish they had. So, do you remember when we mentioned Ethelred's attempt at a navy and how one leader of the fleet just left with something like forty ships? Edric was a part of that too. Yeah, it seems Edric's brother Britric accused the man of treason against his king, which was certainly false. It seems like a power play to take the man's position in the fleet, but you know, it backfired. In kind of a big way. That guy, Wolfgate was his name, he didn't just change his resume from captain to pirate. No, this guy joined Thorkel the Tall's invasionary force. And after Thorkel attacked, Edric talked to Ethelred, who was furious and set on retaliation against engaging Thorkel militarily. Edric essentially choreographed many more months of unstable episodic warfare. And by Swain Forkbeard's 1013 invasion, it was Emma's ship to Normandy that Edric found himself on, separate from his king's ship. Edric, is safe to say, was a snake. Edric was definitely a symptom of the sickness that England had suffered for some decades, but he was hardly the one, the only one, playing the proverbial Game of Thrones. Everyone, as was England's culture by this time, was making power plays and positioning their little micro-kingdom in the best place they could, trying to take into account all of the different outcomes that may happen. Every elderman and nobleman, warrior and king, merchant and farmer, was a part of this vast movement into England's future, but in February of 1014, just weeks after he finally assumed the throne of England, when Swain Forkbeard died, it quite literally turned the north sea upside down ethelred and emma along with their children they were all in normandy and so was edric no doubt plotting his best course of action separate from his kings or alongside his kings back in england the main er, excuse me the military and political battlefield had suddenly shifted those who had supported ethelred albeit reluctantly at this point in his reign just one year before, quickly shifted their support to Swain Forkbeard. When their new king died, his son, who had been on campaign with him for a couple of years, well, he was next in line. But wait, Swain had left another son, the eldest son, Harold, in charge of Denmark. Would he be banging on the English door soon to to claim it for himself? Or should the English nobility throw their support to the Dane in their land already, the youngest but present, Canute? Canute II, to be exact. Or, since it hadn't been long at all, should they invite their king back for another shot? Either way, they're going to tick off two and be subject to one. Who does the English nobility have? more of a stake in getting what they want out of this whole situation. That's the question they asked. As laid out already, Ethelred, you can imagine, wasn't exactly a beloved leader by this time. In fact, many among his nobility couldn't stand the guy. And Edric's presence only escalated tensions across the kingdom. However, Ethelred needed their support now if he wanted his kingdom back he would most certainly have to agree to some terms. Admittedly, when I read this in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, I laughed out loud. I can't help it. The guy had messed up so badly as king during the last 20 years that part of his agreement to return as their king was that he would, quote, govern them more justly than he did before, end quote. I mean, if that's not a royal smack in the face, I don't know what is. They could have just said, um, hey, um, so yeah, you sucked so badly as our king before. We can see why you're in the position you're in right now. But but we'll graciously accept you back if you could, like, just not suck as bad as you did before. Got that? So they covered their tracks, these noblemen, with those terms too. They also made him agree, Ethelred, agree to forgive and forget Every single last thing they'd ever done or said against the crown or English prosperity. Smart fellas. And also, did you catch that? What happened when they made that pact with Ethelred? It's not immediately apparent, but it's still there. Did you notice that Ethelred was forced to compromise his authority at the behest of his noblemen? Yeah. This is the first time in English history where a king was forced to do this. And it most certainly won't be the last. Hold on to that little nugget as we get a couple centuries down the road. So Ethelred returned, with Adric still at his side. But what of Canute? How did he handle the news? Well, you can imagine Canute wasn't exactly happy about the route the elderman went. In fact, Canute couldn't have been more irate. For the previous two years, as he campaigned the English countryside and battling alongside his father, Canute was entrusted with the hostages Swain captured along the way. These were normally part of the nobility, but also consisted of successful businessmen and even skilled workers, too. They were largely kept for ransom at some point. Even if Swain's Danish forces lost the war, he still could make quite a bit of money off these hostages. When Canute heard the news of Ethelred's return, he consolidated his forces near Gainsborough in Lindsay, the place where Swain Forkbeard had died. Lindsay lies immediately nor- or excuse me, south of Northumbria. The region Ethelred angered years earlier with the unexpected murder of their elderman, Elfheim. And remember, he also blinded Elfheim's two sons. It held the towns of Gainsborough and Lincoln, as well as a few monasteries. See, Lindsay cast their support with Canute when Ethelred returned in 1014, which, obviously, didn't sit well with the shamed king. Canute hauled the hostages on a rampage toward London, having heard word that Ethelred and his sons Ethelstan, Ætheling and Edmund were taking London, along with a new ally, Olaf Haraldsson, the king of Norway and soon-to-be Saint Olaf. It was an impressive strategy as Olaf Haraldsson took the bridge from the perspective of the river, while Ethelstan, the next in line to the English crown, who's quickly proving to be a very capable young leader and warrior, took his men across the thinned-out bridge and took London by storm. Young Edmund at his side. At this point, in April of 1014, Canute reevaluates his position. He decides he needs he needs more support. He grudgingly takes off to Denmark, where he planned to ask his half-brother and current de facto king of Denmark for land within Denmark, as well as help taking back England. It was a bold move for the younger Canute, no doubt. What's to say that King Harold won't just off him as a potential usurper? But Canute had a bit of a hothead, see? And when you're a hothead, you tend to make some pretty rash decisions. On his way, he made a last-second detour towards Sandwich where he dropped the hostages off. He offloaded these POWs who were free to head back home after who knows how long as pawns in a nation-sized game of chess. Well, I mean, they could return home, of course, but I'm not sure what they could accomplish in the England of 1014. See, Canute saw that every last hostage made landfall without their ears, noses, or hands. Wow. Well, I hate to end this episode on such a down note, but no one said life in medieval Europe was easy or pleasant. England. England's struggling in 1014, and I wish I could say that better times are ahead, but I just can't. Thank you all for downloading and listening. Our numbers keep increasing, which is a testament to all of you. So please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. Or drop a quick line about the latest episode on the Facebook page. Just search for Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I update these pages weekly, and I would love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com which I check almost daily. Canute was hardly finished with England in April of 1014. His brief resistance to Ethelred's return and his maiming and disfiguring of a whole load of English elite was just the beginning. When we return next week, we see one dynasty fall for good and another one rise, only to fall shortly after. I can't wait to tell you about it.